0: Welcome to the Church 214 podcast. We're glad that you've joined us today. We hope that you enjoy today's message. And if you'd like to find out more about our church, please visit our website at church214.org. Good morning, Church 214. How are we doing today? Are you excited to be in the presence of God? Are you excited to be in the presence of God? That's good, because that's what we're going to talk about today. <laughs> you know, Chris kicked us off so beautifully last weekend by just simply encouraging us to come into the presence of God. And I get to close us out this weekend. It's a short, two-week series, very simple. Um, this very simple idea of just come and stay. So today I want to encourage us to stay in the presence of God, and that's hard. It takes discipline. But it's not God's fault. It's not God's fault. You see, we are the ones that are so easily distracted. We are the ones that get up and leave. Okay? He's the one that has always been there and always will be. But what I want to talk about today is, what I want to help us with is this idea that, you know, just because it's hard, And it takes discipline doesn't mean that it's complicated. And I fear that many of us, especially those of us that grew up inside the church, have an overly complicated, sometimes overly spiritualized understanding of what it means to come and stay in the presence of God. We don't even realize that we've programmed ourselves into this mindset that what happens at Monarch Music Hall on Sunday morning from 10 to 10:30 is called worship, and what happens from 10:30 to 11:15-ish, depending on whether I'm preaching or someone else is preaching, is is called the message, and and what happens outside of those two buckets is called life. We don't even realize that we've programmed ourselves into this mindset that. The presence of God is only accessible when we're doing the most spiritual, churchy things like prayer and worship through music and, and hearing a message. And so what I want to do today, uh, man, I don't know, maybe it's, just, maybe it's just the way we were taught. Maybe it's just, I don't know, we're believing some subtle lies from the enemy. Maybe it's both. I, it's probably both. It doesn't really matter. What I want to do today is try to help us just start, at least start to simplify this idea of what it means to come and stay in the presence of God. Remember, at Church 214, we're always going to keep it simple. Hello? We just kept it. We kept it simple. We kind of had to. Okay, we had to call like seven audibles today. This week, okay? And and it's okay. I love that we can do that at this church. So if there's one thing, we're going to keep it simple. So if there's one thing, I want you to just start Try to just start grabbing onto it today. I'm not asking you to get it. I'm just asking you to start trying to grab it. It's this. Everyone experiences God's presence differently. Everyone experiences God's presence differently. So that means everyone stays in God's presence differently. Everyone experiences God's presence differently, so that means everyone stays in God's presence differently. Now, staying in God's presence does not mean that you are locked into a specific location or locked into doing a specific act 24-7 because we all know that's not possible. And newsflash, it wasn't possible for the greatest heroes of the faith, the greatest heroes of the Bible. Okay, We all have to sleep, right? Some of us have to go to work, like I can't go to my office at Caterpillar and sit at my desk and pray all day because I will get fired, (laughs) okay? And if you stay home with your kids, you cannot lock yourself in your room and like have a cup of coffee and like listen to your favorite worship music and cuddle up with your favorite blanket and like meditate on God's word and just because in 10 seconds, what's gonna happen, right? (laughs) Yes, you can't let your kids run wild and hungry outside the door. But you know what's happening? That's funny, but you know what's happening? You know what they're doing? They are doing everything they can to get into your presence. Maybe they're onto something. Maybe they're onto something. We'll get back to that in a little bit. So before we go any further, I wanna, let's, we need to make sure we understand very clearly what staying in the presence of God is. So I want to define it. Um, the definition I like to use is simply this. Chris talked about um, just this idea of having an awareness of God's presence. God is always here. Are you aware of it? Well, staying in God's presence is this. Maintaining an awareness of God's presence no matter where I am or what I'm doing. Okay. If we're going to stay in God's presence, we need to maintain an awareness of his presence no matter where we are or what we're doing. And that's why it's hard. Because at church, it's, it's, I don't know, I hope it's easy at church, I think it's easy at this church to maintain an awareness of God's presence, whether it's during the music or listening to the message or talking with people afterwards. Um, but, But what about, like, when your kids are crying and they're not going to sleep? What about when you're you're having like the tenth meeting about this subject at work that you think should have been handled after the first one, and it's only because that one manager just like she really shouldn't be in that position, um, and he's just like totally ruining the project, and you have to like what what about then? Now. So, so, again, staying in God's presence means maintaining an awareness no matter where I am or what I am doing. So that means anything that helps facilitate that should be done. And anything that distracts from that should be minimized as much as possible or hopefully thrown out completely. Okay, that's what we're going to talk about today. Now, this might come as a surprise to you, but I experience God's presence most powerfully through music. Now, for the record... For the oh, oh, oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for the record, worship music or Christian music uh, is not the only type of music that helps me stay in God's presence, okay, I just want to throw that out there I, th- I believe that uh, all of us are musical beings on some level, some of us have musical talent that can that is like you know, maybe good enough to be in front of other people, and some of us don't, and that's okay. But I believe that God created every single one of us to uh, respond to music on a really deep level. And so we should all work to participate in it. We should always work to be getting better at participating in it. That doesn't mean that you need to like work on correcting your pitch. It means you need to work on correcting this, okay? Maybe like do some shoulder exercises so you can hold your hands up longer or something like that, (laughs) or higher. You know, the higher you get, the more righteous you are, right? Uh, And if this is your first time here on the podcast, that is not actually true. Um, We'll get to that in another series, maybe. Uh, (laughs) But um, so just because just because I respond, just because I can stay in God's presence best through music. Um, And there's probably other people in the room that would say the same thing. Um, Just because some of us in the room respond best to God's presence through music doesn't mean that it's the best method for everyone in the room or everyone on the podcast. Again, everyone experiences God's presence differently. Now, I would say that I've been leading worship for over 16 years, and even though I have over 16 years of experience, I would say that I'm just now uh, starting to understand this idea and really believe it. My entire life, up to this point, I would say, for most of my entire life, I would say that I've been viewing church or approached the idea of church as a place where I would come to learn more about God through the message and glorify his name through the music. And those are both really good things. Those are both true things. But I don't think I was always fully aware of God's presence while I was doing those things. And even as a worship leader, for at least 10 years of those 16, I led worship from a place, I think I led worship from a place of glorifying his name and and using my gifts to grow the kingdom and encouraging other people, which are great things. Those count. But I wasn't making the connection that I was like actually in God's presence and experiencing him while I was doing those things. And I can't point to a specific point in time where everything clicked. Okay, so I don't have a magic bullet for you this morning. I'm sorry. We we don't have magic bullets at this church. We don't because it's not that simple. But what I can tell you is that about 5 years ago I started becoming more disciplined in my faith and I started becoming more disciplined in my calling as a worship leader and the most importantly I started spending a lot of time with people that were already sensitive to the presence of God. And all of those things combined helped me start to make the connection especially when I was leading worship. But things weren't fixed because soon after that I started every once in a while I would have these thoughts that people that didn't have the same gift, didn't have the same role, that they were at a disadvantage when it came to experiencing God's presence or staying in God's presence. As if leading worship or preaching was somehow extra special. And I remember still fighting these thoughts in the last 12 months, okay? Your worship director, sometimes thinking that some of you were at a disadvantage when it came to coming into God's presence and staying in God's presence simply because you were sitting there and I was standing up here. And I'm sorry. But thankfully I can stand here today and say that I no longer struggle with those thoughts. But do you see how subtle that is? I don't want to leave this subject too quickly. I didn't think that other people were less righteous or less loved by Jesus. Okay, just I wasn't being judgmental or I wasn't, I didn't have it wasn't a condescending thought. It was just I had an advantage. That they didn't have. Just because I was experiencing God's presence so powerfully through this one particular medium, this one particular method, that I had some sort of advantage. And I'm willing to bet, first off, that's a lie. It's a lie from the enemy, and I'm willing to bet that every single person in this room or on the podcast has felt that way at some point. Please raise your hand if you haven't. (laughs) Sorry, I said haven't. There's a lot of handshot. I was like, man, I am the only one that has this problem. Oh, man. Change the rest of the message. i got to erase all of it. That. That's not going to work. <laughs> um, you know, I've felt that way before. I've had these thoughts. I've looked at people that were better at leading worship than, than I am, and they are, okay? It's not like, oh, I have such a low opinion of myself. Objectively, I've looked at that people are objectively better musicians or better worship leaders than me. And I've looked at people that are, objectively better preacher than I am and, and thought that they had a special advantage that I didn't have. And if you feel that way today, I'm telling you it's a lie because there's nothing in God's word that says that God is closest to the worship leaders and the preachers. Okay, I don't have enough time to cover every single passage, but a couple of them very quickly. Jeremiah 29:13 says, if you look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me. It doesn't say if the preachers and the worship leaders look wholeheartedly for me, they'll find me. It says if you, meaning everyone, Jesus says in Matthew 5 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. So, what are the criteria that we've established so far? Look for him wholeheartedly and be pure in heart. And you will see God, not just sort of be aware of him. You will see God if you are pure in heart. It has nothing to do with playing a guitar. Or preaching. And so I hope we can spend so much time on that subject alone. So I hope that I've at least started to help level the playing field for you in your mind. And from this level playing field, I want to launch into, um, I want to look at two examples from the Bible. Two people that I think will help us understand, begin to understand the importance of staying in God's presence. But also lead us into some practical steps we can take to step forward in the right direction. Is anyone on board with that? Okay, so while you're turning in your Bibles, um, whether it's physical pages, Bibles, or like a device, uh, turn to Exodus 33. And while you're doing that, I want to set up this first story. So in Exodus 33, the Israelites are in the middle of their 40-year wandering in the wilderness. Okay, and while they're wandering through the wilderness, God manifests his presence in the form of a cloud, a pillar of cloud by day to lead them through the desert. And by night, it's a pillar of fire. That's pretty freaking awesome. They don't have the tabernacle yet. They don't have the Ark of the Covenant yet. But they do have something called the Tent of Meeting. It's a small tent that Moses sets up way outside the camp. And he goes there to meet with God. And that's where we pick up the story, Exodus 33, starting in verse 7. It says, Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp far off from the camp and he called at the tent of meeting and everyone who sought the Lord should be in all caps don't miss that everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting which was outside the camp verse 8 whenever Moses went out to the tent all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone out into the tent When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. That's so cool. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. I'll have to talk to Heather because we could do a whole series on those four verses, honestly. A bunch of things, there's so much in there, but a few things jumped out to me that I want to share with you. Did you catch it in verse 10? the people of Israel watched and worshipped from a distance while Moses and Joshua sought the presence of the Lord. Okay? They watched and they worshipped from a distance while Moses and Joshua sought the presence of the Lord. And I've got to be honest with you because I'm, I'm still wrestling with this idea as I preach it, so I would appreciate some grace in this matter, but I think this means that it's possible to worship God without being in his presence. Or at least fully in his presence. The people of Israel had the same opportunity that Moses and Joshua did. Go back and read verse 7. It says, everyone who sought the presence of the Lord would go out to the tent. So the whole camp could have gone out there. And Joshua, though he was Moses, the assistant to Moses, he didn't necessarily have to go. Moses can walk a few hundred yards by himself. Everyone had the same opportunity to experience God's presence. Two of them actually went. Two of them. So worship, and and guys, let me, I, I can't, We can't move on too quickly from this. I think the worship counted. Okay? I I bet you they, they were either standing and worshiping like this or on their knees or something. Maybe even playing instruments. I don't know. But the worship counted. They meant it. But Moses and Joshua went all the way to the tent. This means that worship is good, but his presence is best. Okay, his wor- the worship is good, but his presence is best. We need to be desperate for his presence. The rest of the camp had the same opportunity. But they chose to stay in the camp. They chose to watch him worship from a distance. In much the same way, we, only we, can choose our proximity to his presence. It is 100% up to us how close we get. Are you going to go out to the tent and seek his presence, or are you going to stay in the camp? And if that isn't the coolest part, honestly... Let's go back to verse 11. It says, thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. That is one of the coolest verses in the entire Bible. Okay, I want to be, be like that. I want to have that kind of relationship where, where God speaks to me like a friend. Think about the last time you had a conversation with your best friend. Like, how, how intimate that was, the brotherhood or the sisterhood that you experienced. Like, you, you probably laughed and shared jokes, or maybe it was a really sad time and you cried. Or if you're like me and my friends, we tend to solve all the world's problems. <laughs> or at least try to solve all the problems. Right? Think about how awesome those times are. And that is, that, that is garbage compared to what Moses experienced in that tent. Because Moses was probably a decent friend. You know how good of a friend God is? But that's not even what I want to focus on. It says, when Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. The writer of Exodus wants a couple of things to really stick out to you. He slaps that word assistant on there very quickly, right? The assistant, right? Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man. What is the writer trying to tell you? He's young, he's inexperienced, he doesn't know what he's doing, he's not ready yet. He's unqualified. Well, Joshua got one thing right. Because he stayed. He stayed in the tent. He stayed in God's presence because he was aware that this was a special opportunity. He could have stayed in the camp. Moses can walk by himself. He could have stayed just outside the tent, you know, and like hold his cloak and his staff and just kind of, you know, probably wasn't a lot to lean on because it was a tent. It would collapse. But, right? He could have done that too. But he went in. Because it says he would not depart from the tent. He went all the way into the tent and he saw God speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. That had to have blown him away. So he became aware of God's presence in a powerful and intimate way. And when he had the opportunity to go back into the camp, he chose to stay. Now, we don't know what God said to him when he was alone in the tent. It's possible that he said nothing. Joshua might have sat in the tent every single time in total silence and never heard a word from God. And that makes sense if you think about it because he wasn't the prophet. Moses was the prophet. Moses was the mouthpiece of God to the people. God didn't need to tell Joshua anything. It wasn't his role. It wasn't ready for it anyway. It wasn't his time anyway. And so some people might think it was a waste of time I don't, because you know what he learned? Even if he heard zero words from God, he learned to recognize his presence, and he learned to stay. And you want to know how valuable that is? You want to know why that's important? No, And and I know what you're thinking, but, but Phil, Joshua is like one of the ultimate heroes of the Bible. And you're right. This is back to the spiritual advantage thing, okay? You're right. He is one of the great heroes of the Bible. But in Exodus 33, he's not a hero. That's why the writer said, Assistant, Joshua the son of Nun. A convenient play on words, (laughs) right? Unfortunate name of, of his father, right? A young man. He was not the leader of the people of Israel yet. He had not led them to victory at Jericho. He was the servant. Some translations use the word servant. So he was probably, there was probably times when he just carried Moses' cloak for him. Wow. And he didn't get paid either. Those things... Those disciplines were not easy for him because he was a hero. He did not have some spiritual advantage that we don't have because he's Joshua, okay? He learned these disciplines first, and they enabled him to become a hero, okay? That equipped him to fulfill his calling to its fullest extent. Now, you can go read, the, just keep reading through Exodus, and you can read through the rest of his life, and you can see everything that God accomplished through him. He wasn't perfect. He made mistakes. But I believe he became a hero because he first learned to be faithful as best he could and to trust God as best he could and to stay in God's presence as best as he possibly could. And I would say that that time spent staying in the tent was arguably the most important discipline that he ever developed because whether you are leading an entire nation, a million people from the desert into a foreign land of giants, or you're leading a church of 150 people from one side of town to the other, or you're leading a family of four in your own home on a Tuesday, you need to be able to recognize the presence of God and stay in the presence of God. It doesn't matter how big the stage looks to the rest of the world. It doesn't matter how many people are underneath your influence. You have got to figure out how to recognize the presence of God and you have to develop methods to help you stay in the presence of God. It does not matter the size, the size of the calling because there are souls at stake Now, I had originally planned to spend my entire message talking about Joshua because who wouldn't want to talk about Joshua for hours? But in the last couple of weeks, God showed me another really cool example that I, want to, I just have to share with you. So while you're turning to 2 Kings, I'm going to set up the second story. Naaman was the commander of the army of Syria during the life and ministry of Elisha, the prophet Elisha. And God had blessed him. He was a brilliant military commander. And, uh, but he had, he had leprosy. And he found out from a servant girl, oddly enough, that there was this prophet in Israel, Elisha, that could heal him. So he travels to Israel. And Elisha tells him to dip in the Jordan River seven times. And he reluctantly agrees, because it's a dirty river. He has much nicer rivers back home in Syria. Um, but his men convince him to do it. And he comes out after the seventh time, and he's healed. So we pick up the story right there in verse 15. It says, Then Naaman and his entire party went back to find the man of God. They stood before him, and Naaman said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel, so please accept a gift from your servant. But Elisha replied, As surely as the Lord lives whom I serve, I will not accept any gifts. And though Naaman urged him to take the gift, Elisha refused. Verse 17, then Naaman said, all right, but please allow me to load two of my mules with earth from this place, and I will take it back home with me. From now on, I will never again offer burnt offerings or sacrifices to any other god except the Lord. However, may the Lord pardon me in this one thing. When my master, the king, goes into the temple of the god Rimon, which is another name for the god Baal. When he goes there to worship and leans on my arm, may the Lord pardon me when I bow to. Go in peace, Elisha said. So Naaman started home again. Now I want to zero in on verse 17. One of the weirdest verses in the Bible. Naaman asks for two mules to be loaded up with dirt. Now why in the world would he do that? To understand this, because the text doesn't make it obvious, so you have to understand how the people in the Middle East, ancient Middle East, thought about the spiritual realm at this time. So each nation had its own god or pantheon of gods. And it was understood that each nation's territory was literally protected, at least in the spiritual realm, by their chief god. So in this case, Israel was protected by God, the one true God, and Syria was protected by Baal. And these gods were not figments of their imagination. This wasn't like a metaphor to them. This was real. They believed that these were real real spiritual beings with real power. And so if two nations would go to war, it was understood, for instance, that if whichever nation won the war, just as that nation triumphed in the physical realm, their god triumphed over the losing nation's god in the spiritual realm, as above, so below. This is how the spiritual realm worked in their minds. Now, at this time, there wasn't war between Israel and Syria. But Naaman had been worshiping Baal his entire life, and Baal had never been strong enough to heal him. Right? God was strong enough to heal him. And it totally changed his heart. And he acknowledged God as the one true God, the only God in all the earth. He didn't really mean... That's not a good translation. He didn't really mean that God is the only God that exists and all the other gods are fake. What he means is God, the God of Israel, is the most powerful of all gods. So the other ones don't matter, but they're still real. Okay? This is what was going on in his head. Because God did this miracle, in his mind, he's standing on holy ground. Kind of like when Moses experienced the burning bush. In Naaman's mind, he's standing on holy ground. He's standing in God's territory. But he knew he had to go back home, which was Baal's territory. Now, in his mind, he didn't... He didn't think that God was, like, not strong enough to conquer Baal's territory, okay? And I would say that Baal was not strong. It wasn't Baal's territory because he had resisted God up to this point, okay? Baal was the god of Syria because the people of Syria worshipped him, not because he was stronger than God, okay? And Syria's time had not yet come. The time of change had not yet come. God's timing had not yet come where he would turn that nation into his children, too. So at this moment, Syria was Baal's territory. Israel was God's territory. Naaman would prefer to stay in God's territory, stay on that holy ground. But he had a job to do. He had to go back. If he didn't go back, the nations would probably end up at war. It would be treason at like the highest level. So what's he going to do? He needs some dirt, right? Now, we don't really know what he used the dirt for, but scholars have a few really cool ideas as to what he used the dirt for. One of them is that uh, if you look at the next sentence, it says that no longer will I offer sacrifices or burnt offerings to uh, any other God but the God, the one true God. So some people think that uh, he took the dirt and went home and built some, made some mud bricks and then built an altar out of those mud bricks so that he could offer sacrifices to God built on an altar made from God's territory. And in that way, he wouldn't defile the sacrifices by offering them on an altar that was made from Baal's dirt, basically. Other people have said that you know, maybe he took some of that dirt and put it in a little pouch in his pocket, almost like a necklace or a ring or something to like re- remind him of that one day in the Jordan River where God healed him. Other people have said, well, maybe he took some of that dirt and he went back to his house and he just spread out like a little patch, maybe in his living room or something. And so anytime he wanted to pray, he would pray from God's territory, right? Or maybe he spread some around his, a little bit around his entire property or just maybe around his house. You see, Naaman was on holy ground back at the Jordan River and uh, he wanted to make sure he stayed on holy ground, so he carried it with him. He had to carry it with him. He knew that he was going back to a place in his mind where God wasn't. But he didn't want to leave God's presence. He wanted to make sure for the rest of his life that his little section of Syria was actually in God's territory, not Baal's territory. So he could stay on that holy ground, so he could stay in God's presence. So he had to carry it with him. Joshua was desperate for the presence of God, so he stayed in the tent. Naaman was desperate for the presence of God, so he carried some loads of dirt with him. And because of what Jesus did on the cross, we all have access to the presence of God. We don't have to go to a tent outside the camp. We don't have to take mule loads of dirt everywhere we go. Right? The veil has been torn. As his children, if you're his child, you have the Holy Spirit. So he's already here. But like Chris said, are you aware of it? Are you going to maintain an awareness of his presence no matter where you are or what you're doing? And some of you are saying, yes, Phil, I want that, but how do I, what do I do? Because like you said, I don't need a tent and I don't need dirt. Okay, well, I'm going to try to help you. The first thing I would say is come to church every week. Here are some practical tips. Come to church every week. The presence of the Lord is here every single week. I promise you it's here. There's nothing special about this building uh, most of the time until we're here. <laughs> And it's not special because I'm here, Chris is here, or Jared's here, or Tim's here. It's special because when the people of God gather here, God shows up too. And I promise you, you'll experience His presence here. So if you want to experience His presence or start learning about it, you need to just come every single week. That sounds very self-serving. I promise you, it's not. You won't regret it. Um, There's let's redeem your phones a little bit, okay? So you can get there's like. A billion apps that you can put on this dumb thing and uh, oddly enough the most downloaded one of all time is the Bible app yeah and just so download it there's like all kinds of devotions and reading plans just on that one single app there's a bunch of there's a bunch of them that are great Uh, I would do that Um, there's prayer tracking apps like echo where you can type in a specific person's name or a specific prayer request and anytime you want to pray You can just pull up your app and start clicking through prayer requests, and you can track it over time. You can write down dates and times and notes where God answered, and you can see his faithfulness over time. Um, Craig Rochelle recommends Words to Live By. I actually do this. Um, If you looked at my calendar app, you would think I was insane because it's so full, but I actually have four calendar reminders every single day at different times of the day. And they're just little statements that I wrote in there. Words to live by. These are statements that I'm trying to train my mind with. And I don't read all four of them every single day, okay? But I read them sometimes. And you know what? It's helped a lot. Download songs, or download albums instead of songs. We have a tendency to download singles because it's the first song that comes out and it's the catchiest one usually. But especially with worship music, albums are usually written with a common theme, a common narrative. And so if you just download the single, you're actually missing on out on like the 11 twelfths of the story or 13 ths of the story, <laughs> okay? So download the whole album. I know it's more money, but we have to get away from these little short bursts of God's presence and get some continuity, so buy the whole album and listen to it all the way through. Make playlists. If you don't want to do that, make playlists. Take a bunch of worship songs that you love and dump them all in a playlist and listen through that. Again, continuity, not short little bursts of his presence. And take those songs that you like and maybe pull out your Bible and try to find passages that match up. Now you're spending time listening to songs, filling your mind with truth, and you're also looking through his words, studying. And lastly, I would say spend time with people that are already sensitive to his presence. I'm telling you this is the most important thing that I've done. At one point, somebody taught you how to ride a bike or swim. This is way more important than any of that. Somebody taught you how to drive sometime. You need to learn what the presence of God is like and how to stay. So spend time with people that are a little bit further along in that journey than you are. Or how about this? What if you started working out? Or mow the lawn or hunt, or build a table, or paint, or sew, or clean, make a meal for your family, or better yet, for somebody else, take a drive, read a book, encourage someone, make a friend. Are are you tracking? Listen, everyone experiences God's presence differently, which means everyone stays in God's presence differently. And I am telling you, you can stay in God's presence doing any one of these things and a million others. You just might not be aware of it. So here's your homework for the week. Start with the things you love the most. Whatever that one or two or three things, whatever that is, start with the things you love doing the most. And if you don't experience God's presence doing that, all you need to do this week, this is your homework. Start asking Him to reveal Himself to you when you're doing that. Okay. It's going to feel like you're crawling at first. It might feel like you're crawling for years, okay? But eventually, you're going to develop a discipline of staying in God's presence when you're doing those things that you love. And once you get disciplined there, you're actually going to start to find yourself experiencing God's presence in things that are adjacent to the things that you love. So maybe they're okay, but they don't love doing them. And then maybe a few years later you recognize, oh wow, I'm actually maintaining my awareness of God's presence in those things too. And slowly that circle is going to expand. And I'm telling you, you have to start there because the only way you have any hope of maintaining an awareness of God's presence when you're doing things that you hate <laughs> is you got to start somewhere. you got to start with the quick wins. If you can't experience God's presence and the things you love doing the most, you have no hope way out of here. Doesn't matter who you are. So that's that's your homework for this week. Just start asking him to reveal himself to you when you're doing the things that you love most. I promise he will show up. If you look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me, he says. when the leadership team went to Dallas for heaven come, about six weeks ago or so, I had the privilege of holding my son Lex through a good chunk of the messages and the worship sets. And uh, as you can see, he's worshiping right there. He's clapping. And this might not surprise you, but the conference schedule is, I, there's not a single conference out there where the schedule aligns with like a three-month-old baby's nap schedule, okay? <laughs> it it was never close, okay? And so we would do our best to, um, you know, try to get him to sleep while we're there, and uh, just so we wouldn't want to pull our hair out by the time we got home at night. And and so I'd be, you know, I'd be trying to, like, engage with, like, the, the, the sta- what's happening on the stage. So the, the worship's going on or the preacher is going. And, and I've got Lex, and I'm, like, I've got him kind of over my shoulder, and I'm bouncing him, you know. I have no idea if I'm any good at it, but you guys all get to see what I look like while I bounce. And, like, he was not having it. So, like, he, he, he was doing this thing. Have you, if you have kids, have you ever seen this? Like the Heisman move on your chest, just. So I would give up and just hold him like that. And it was really frustrating at first because I'm like, man, come on, you gotta sleep, buddy. Don't you understand how hard you're making this for me and mama? <laughs> and in those moments, God spoke so clearly to me, I almost heard his voice. This is the most clearly God has ever spoken to me in my life. He said, do you see how your son will not be denied a view of what I'm doing? Do you see how your son is desperate for my presence? He's not distracted. He will not be denied. So now you his father go and do the same. Now some of you will inevitably say, but come on, he's a six month old baby. There's loud music and lights and the preacher is all excited and he's just responding to stimulus and I don't know, maybe you're right. I can't prove anything. But I know that God spoke to me and I also know that God put just as much eternity in his heart as a baby as he has in mine. I don't have more eternity in my heart because I'm older, okay? I know that God formed him in his mother's womb, just like I was formed in my mother's womb. And I know that his eyelids were one piece of skin at one point, and mysteriously a cutting device appears and slits them in two. And he opened his eyes for the first time. I wonder what the first face he actually saw. I don't know. I would say that for that, those reasons and a thousand other reasons I could come up with, my son, and I would say all of our children, are extremely sensitive to the presence of God in their lives. They just lack the ability to accurately and adequately explain it to all the enlightened and educated adults in their lives just how awesome and real it is. Guys, we have to get to a place of desperation for his presence. We had to start understanding. we got to simplify. Man, take the pressure off. Take the pressure off yourself. Everyone experiences God's presence differently. Everyone stays in God's presence differently. It's okay. You got to start finding those things that work for you and those things that don't. And, and, and you got to start doing your best to scratch and crawl and claw your way to a discipline, a place of spiritual discipline around those methods. Your, your mindset has to be that you're not going to be denied. Like Joshua, who refused to leave the tent. Or Naaman, who took loads of dirt with him. Or Lex, who would refuse to nap so that he could maintain his view of what God was doing at having come. It's time to come into the presence of God and it's time to stay. I can't do it for you. None of us can do it for you, but we can help and i promise if you stick with it and you're in the right place god will meet you there he will speak to you and you have no idea what's in store but i can promise you it's good i can promise you it's good cuz nobody's going to love him the way that nobody's going to love you the way that he does It's time to come and stay. Would you pray with me? Jesus, you are all we need. God, you're right there. You have never left, but we are so easily distracted by the things of this world, by things that we think matter so much. And we're missing out on the fact that you want to meet us in all of those places. You want to speak to us through all of those situations. You're not sitting there at church on Sunday waiting for us to make it through the first six days of the week. You're waiting for us ahead of us in every single situation that we're going into. You're already there, desperate for us to acknowledge you, desperate for us to be aware of you so that you can continue to love us, continue to change our hearts in every single situation we walk into instead of floundering, trying to figure it out ourselves with our own strength, with our own understanding. God, begin to open our eyes. Help us to take the pressure off ourselves to pursue you in the things we love the most first and just to continue to ask you, to be bold enough to ask you to help us, be bold enough to ask you to reveal yourself to us. And when we do, would you continue to be faithful as you always have been to open our eyes and open our ears and reveal yourself to us so that we can learn what it's like when we come into your presence and that we can start to learn to stay. In Jesus' name, amen.